0: This Dharma talk on patience by sharing something that Sarah Ban Brechnach wrote. She said, expect to have hope rekindled. <coughs> expect your prayers to be answered in wondrous ways. The dry seasons in life do not last the spring rains will come again. (coughs) I wanted to dedicate this talk particularly um, to the movement to opening our hearts to peoples of all colours, and to the ending of racism, and um, I there's a wonderful young. A gay man, African American man on the board of Dharmadana Meditation Center. And he said the other day, he said, I just feel so despairing about racism ending. So I want to read it again. Expect to have hope rekindled. Expect your prayers to be answered in wondrous ways. The dry seasons in life do not last. The spring rains will come again. Some of you know that I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and my parents were very active in the struggle against apartheid. In 1960, the government passed something called the Emergency Act that gave the Secret Service powers to arrest people without trial, so they did a mass arrest of any and everyone. Now, my parents had decided to be very strategic around their political activities, and my father um, was um, considered more dispensable in terms of parenting than my mother. I guess that was very true in in the... 50s and 60s, so he was he was he did more overtly uh, political acts. My mom used to drive into the African townships because, for those of you who don't know, Africans weren't um, that Africans um, I- in South Africa were dark-skinned um, Africans, and um, they were called Africans, and um. So Africans were not allowed to live in the same places as white people unless they were domestic servants. And then they weren't allowed to live in the same structure or building. There were separate buildings. That was by law. So my mom used to drive us at night into the townships to teach Africans who wanted to read and write, how to read and write. This was considered a radical activity, and so she was arrested too. So they were both, they were both <coughs> arrested. So my dad was in jail for six months, and my mom was in jail for four months. And then they got out, and then about mm, a few days after they got gotten out, or a week or something, I forget what, they got a tip-off they were going to be rearrested. And that's what the police really loved to do. They love to arrest you, let you go just for a little bit, and then re-arrest you again. Because that was much more despairing, having that change. So so they had to go underground. And we, the kids, were being watched by the secret police. So there's no way that they could have seen us. And so they realized that there, w- that there just wasn't any Role for them in South Africa at that point, and um, especially, especially as parents, that they couldn't be parents in that situation. So they gave up rights to citizenship by signing what's called an affidavit, where under penalty of death you leave a country and you never return, and you 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 leave as um, stateless citizens. You don't have a passport, so you give up all your rights of citizenship so we left and um we left as stateless refugees and went to israel because that was the only country that would allow us to um (coughs) to enter with our passports Uh, we were jewish but israel was like jumping from whatever that expression is the kettle into the fire or the fire into the kettle (laughs) and uh, so we left again as (coughs) um, <coughs> political refugees and asked for asylum in England and we were very lucky at the London airport we happened to hit on a uh, relatively kindly customs official who took pity on <laughs> the, the draggled family <laughs> um, uh, and let us in. It was just before a whole wave of, of actually immigrants into England so we were lucky we caught it at um, a good time. In that process, my parents kind of lost hope, and they felt like there wasn't any role for them to play in the struggle anymore, and they gave up all, all their um, activities in um, trying to change apartheid. Apart from um, opening our house to people coming out of prison, we had a, a stream of people coming out of prison staying with us in uh, London and um and i remember talking to my father maybe when i was 15 and he just said that he was despairing that he didn't think apartheid was ever going to end and i i really felt that i just felt that despair of the of their struggle you know and of um the very difficult situations they went through and just the pain of living in a society um that was based on violence against one people for the benefit of, a, of another and, um, um, and then and then the changes started to take place uh, or didn't started to take place they continued to manifest because there were of course people who um, continued that struggle in all kinds of different ways, and other people joined in the struggle. But um, there was one person in particular who really, was, uh, who really was a deep inspiration through the whole process, and that was Nelson Mandela. Right from the very beginning of the early meetings that happened in my parents' house, he had a particular kind of dignity. And a grace, and most of you know that Nelson was in jail for over twenty years, and um when he was finally um, freed, all the prison guards stood in a row to shake his hand because they had been so touched by his dignity and his grace, and that he never lost hope that he never lost hope for the resolution of the difficulties he had he had enormous patience and he had that enormous patience because he really believed that by refraining from moving into the negative qualities of mind like despair we carry the vision and the hope and manifest it in our moment to moment lives that creates the conditions for the flowering of change. And he did, he really did as a being. Um, Eric talked a lot yesterday about Gandhi and um, Nelson was another person like Gandhi who was uh, really beautiful in in cultivating patience through difficulties. And um, we were talking. We were talking about that. We've really been talking about that a lot through these two days. That place of where we hold through difficult times by not letting ourselves get into reactivity, uh, into reactions, or into. Um, Uh, Revenge or hatred. I'm not saying that those feelings don't come up, but we don't get into them We don't build them. We don't increase their energies or the storyline around them and you know there must have been (laughs) Well one of the reasons that my parents got imprisoned were in jailed and and um, Many people later for a very long time is that there was one man who insisted, because everything was underground, it was totally illegal. All activity was uh, political activity was illegal. That was against apartheid. There was one man who insisted on knowing the names of everyone else in the cells. And I don't know why everyone agreed to it, but I guess he had given a good reason, strategic reason for why. And he was, when he was arrested, without torture, he gave the names to the police of everyone. And there's still some people in jail um, uh, um, until, until the ANC took place. There were still people in jail until they took power. So there was Nelson you know, knowing that there were so many of um, the people that he lived and worked so closely with in jail because of this one man. Can you imagine? I mean, because I heard lots of conversations about this growing up. Can you imagine the discipline? Of not wanting to get into revenge, you know, of not of not building fantasies about killing the guy. Um, but I never ever ever heard him. Um, I never ever ever heard him talk negatively about this one particular man who, who's now living in Europe. <coughs> so the quality of patience—it's such a—it's such a beautiful quality. It's some um, part of the 10 paramis. And um, for, for those of you who don't know, the paramis are these beautiful qualities of mind that, um, that we can develop, n- and not just in our meditation practice, which we certainly all have been practicing patience already through these days, <coughs> but really in our lives. There are 10 qualities. The first one is generosity. Then there's morality, which is non-harming. Then there's renunciation. Then there's um, wisdom. Then there's uh, energy. Then patience. Then truthfulness. Then uh, loving-kindness, determination, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And the story of the paramis is that when the Buddha, eons ago, which means a long time, (laughs) a hundred thousand eons i never knew what an eon was but i guess it was a long time a hundred thousand eons ago realized that he wanted to be a buddha that he already had a very beautiful mind and he could see that in order to be a buddha he needed to perfect these ten qualities that's so beautiful and so he spent lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, perfecting each of these qualities until they blossomed into the fullness of his being. So uh, then I'll I'll tell you a story about one of his lifetimes, because he wasn't just a human being, he also became, um, uh, this is, uh, take it as a story if you don't believe in reincarnation, that's fine, because. It's so nice to hear a story, too. <laughs> um, he was a um, buffalo. Apparently, he was a beautiful buffalo. In the Jakarta tale storybook that I saw over there, he was a buffalo with blue eyes. But I don't know if he really was a <laughs> buffalo with blue <laughs> eyes. Anyway, uh, he apparently, he was a very beautiful buffalo. And there was this mischievous monkey that was, that was constantly irritating him. When he tried to sleep, the monkey would jump on his back. and and beat him with a stick. When he tried to feed, the monkey would run around under his feet. He, this monkey was, like, was, um, was a really, um, one can imagine a very irritating presence. <laughs> so this, this sprite, this forest sprite, um, came, came down to the buffalo and said to the buffalo, listen, you know, why don't you just take your power and get rid of this monkey. You are such a big animal. I mean even lions are scared of you and tigers are scared of you. I mean people I mean animals could really see you as a king of the of the forest. And um the buffalo said, um um, you know I I I have a lot of compassion for the monkey because the monkey is putting all his energy into these mischievous, unskillful energies, and no one likes him. No one wants to be his friend because he's such a drag to be around. And I have a lot of compassion for him. And um, anyway, the forest sprite or or, or fairy was um, kind of impressed with this and said, well then, you know, how do you do it? And the buffalo said, "I I cultivate patience. And the sprite said, well, you know, how do you cultivate patience? Gosh, that sounds like a cool thing, and I can perform all these magic tricks, and I can't perform patience. (laughs) And um, so the buffalo talks about trying to understand the situation and the situation of the monkey, and the sprite goes away. Meanwhile, the monkey has heard the buffalo, and the monkey comes to the buffalo and says, You know, I never really realized what I was doing until I heard what you said. And I never really realized that you were a good friend of mine. Thank you. And I vow to um, behave differently. So it's sort of what Eric was saying about when we see the good qualities in another human being through our own. We create the conditions for friendship to come into being. So patience is um, patience is the response to difficult situations, and Sylvia Borstein, um likens it to one of those heaters that when you turn on the hot water, it immediately. Um, heats the water. It's not like you have a big storage tank of patients. You don't have a big storage tank of water either. So when we find ourselves in difficult situations then immediately patients can come up as a response to them. Um, I, uh, some of you might not know that um, I went to uh, graduate school and got a master's degree in organizational development. Um, my teacher, uh, in the Uberkin tradition, really supported me to get another job, and not, and not just to depend on teaching as my income. So um, I went to school, and I got this degree in organizational development, and the whole thing about that was perfecting. How, how organizations run, and supporting them to run more efficiently, and so on and so forth. And I spent a lot of money learning about this, $30,000. <laughs> so um, I actually never got to practice it, <laughs> because I started teaching almost immediately after I got my master's degree. So, But anyway, now I'm, uh, now I'm involved in Dharmadana Meditation Center. And recently we were mailing out our newsletter. We have 2,000 <coughs> names on our mailing list. So it's kind of a big deal to mail out our newsletter. And so we let people in, in, who come to classes and so on know, hey, we're going to do the mailing on this day. Be sure to turn up to do it because, of course, the more people you have, the easier it is to do. So Monday, this particular Monday, was the big day to do it. And um, I had asked some people to get the bulk mailing permits and and, um, the stamps, and then someone had gone to pick them up from the printers. Everything was together. I got into the car that night to go to the mailing party and realized that I had forgotten to collect the mailing labels from the post office. And I walked into that room mortified to tell everyone that there were no mailing labels. (laughs) I tell the story because patience is not just about the external situations of our life, but patience is very much about our own limitations and acknowledging the places where we fall short of how we would like to be. I felt particularly mortified <laughs> because I saw that I carried this expectation inside of myself that I should be efficient. And this is not the only story I have to tell you about how inefficient I am <laughs> in, in um, the ways that I support Dharmadena to run. And we can either get into being really judgmental about ourselves or we can become patient. You know, and it's it's just such a beautiful practice and invitation to over and over again fall back into that calling into being of, I'm just a student and I'm learning. And may I be patient with myself. Actually, um, we all know already how profoundly imperfect the world is in a way that's also what we've been talking about these two days that it is deeply deeply imperfect from the very basic things about how our bodies are changing to the the situations that we've all shared in our sharing circles about relationships and we haven't touched on um, you know, so much also about what's unsatisfactory. We know, um, uh, without going into it, the deeply unsatisfactoriness of what's happening in our political um, world, in our economic world. It's, it's imperfect. The Buddha said that there, was, that there were two ways to relate to this imperfection. The conditioned response is to move in judgment and aversion around it, to kind of push it away and to sort of box it up in a concept or an idea like, this should not happen. Or we can open our hearts to it. When we open our hearts to it, we actually come to that relationship of not holding on to anything other than letting ourselves live in the vulnerability of that imperfection, to carry openly the rawness and the tenderness of how deeply imperfect it is. That we live in a world where each one of us is blind in particular places. There, some very courageous man Yesterday, I don't know. Is he here today? Talked about feeling so differently than many of us here. I don't know if he's here. Um, we we each are blind in unique ways, and it's so easy to think, because we can't see our blindness, that someone else's blindness or ignorance is worse. But we're all blind because we're not enlightened, we're not fully enlightened. And we have our blindness, our blindness comes in different ways. To hold that, to hold that in our hearts is to become really patient, to live with patience through difficulties in the understanding that that relationship, is being bringing about a purity of being, and that that purity of being is the best conditions for healing. So that when um, uh, someone asked the Dalai Lama in an interview that was printed in Shambhala magazine, I think it was in December of 2002, about Tibet, The interviewer said, well, you know, you must feel really miserable about Tibet. (laughs) Because it's such a bad situation there. The Chinese have taken it over. They have influxed the uh, country. Um, A lot of the Tibetan culture has been destroyed. And so many Tibetans murdered and tortured. And it was so funny because in that moment of my eyes going from that question, to the, to the next line, I had this expectation the Dali, that's th- that this interviewer would, would write something like the Dalai Lama put his hands to his face and looked down and tears came down his eyes or something like that, you know. And the Dalai Lama said with a big smile, um, no, no, I don't feel depressed at all about it. He said, I have absolute and total faith that Tibet." Well, um, that the situation in Tibet will resolve, will resolve itself in some way, and that Tibet will find some um, some type of resolution with China where it can be at least partially independent. And I was so moved by that capacity to have faith and to be patient, to have the deepest faith that in continuing his practice and in relating from that practice he knew in the same way that Nelson Mandela knew in jail that there had to be there had to be a positive outcome and i feel such a, a deep respect for the the integrity of those beings who have practiced so vigilantly and had so much faith. And I want to honor also the, the, the woman in the suffragette movement because Mary Wallenscraft in the, in the um, late 1700s had that same vision when no one, no one was talking about woman's right to vote and have power over her lives she talked about it. And she said through her whole life, I have total faith that women eventually will realize their potential. We have that capacity to practice with patience. This is, um, this is a beautiful story of Patience. Vancouver Island. My daughter these days is in pictures, not as in Hollywood, but as in photographs taped to the walls of my prison cell. The cluster of photos tells a story that, in the words of Sophie, begins with, Remember, Dad? I had a happy childhood so far. There we are in maternity ward, proud dad holding a newborn to the camera. Weeks later at home, me exhausted on the couch, her clinging to my chest like a little tree frog. The two of us on the hardwood floor of the kitchen, me coaxing a spiky headed baby into crawling. There's a toddler in a jolly jumper wearing a striped stocking hat. Eyes lit with the glee of a bouncing new life. Then come the early Christmases, each wearing a new bathrobe, Sophie on her feet by now, buried to the ankles in Barbie accessories and piles of torn gift wrap. As she turns into a poised young girl leaving grade five for middle school, I begin to disappear from the collage. Now the pictures of her alone sitting on our favorite beach, pointing to the rock we used to sit upon, or of her, each year, holding up a Christmas gift towards the lens. There is a thinness to her smile in these pictures, carefully held, as if that smile might break into something else the moment the shutter clicks. Her attempts to bridge the distance to include me in the moment are the hard evidence of my absence. When a parent breaks the law, the fractures run straight through the child. It has been three years since Sophie first put her fingertips up to the glass that separated us in the visiting booth of the Roman Center where she visited me twice a week. She knows more about prison than any young girl should have to know and she carries her freight of grief the way other kids her age carry their backpacks to school every day. When I was first arrested, she was broken with grief, sobbing, Dad's never coming home, is he, Mama, to my wife through sleepless nights. Grief turned to anger. She cut my face from the photos in her album. Anger turned to resignation. She glued them back in again. Acceptance came, too, like the day she said the Department of Corrections should actually be the Department of Mistakes how does one remain a parent from prison you can't say to a child hang in there sweetie i'll be home in 18 years it's unimaginable to them yet we remain bound to our children and they to us in as primal a way as any parent by our dna and our love A wise psychiatrist who did a pre-trial assessment of me set down his pen afterwards and said, this isn't about you anymore. You're going to prison for a long time. It's now about a little 10-year-old girl, about showing her that no matter how badly we screw up our lives, no matter how terrible the mistakes we make, it can be survived. There can be redemption. I love that story because sometimes when we face what feels insurmountable, whether it's some, something that we've done that we feel is a really horrible mistake, and, and it feels like in that mistake we've lost everything and there's nothing to do but to give up, or when we face something huge outside of ourselves, like the political reality that we confront. Often we feel overwhelmed and we feel like there's nothing we can do but give up. But the calling of our hearts is to a practice of patience and a recommitment to our understanding that by holding through difficulties with this quality of mind, we actually bring about the conditions for a meeting of hearts. So um, so you all have heard me talk about um, the process that I've been in this last year with Shah and i felt like it was such a practice of patience because um all my friends including eric saw us go through such a deeply painful process where eric and (coughs) other people would call me up and they would say how's it going and i would just burst into tears and and sob and um my sister who i'm really close to who actually has come to who came um to these one one of these one days um, in uh, August because uh, she's a dyke. It was very <laughs> was very um, you know I could tell she was very restrained with me on the phone. She never ever gave me advice. You know she was just like, oh honey, I'm so sorry that it's being so hard. And. Um, at Christmas time, she was going to visit my mom in South Africa because my parents, Mandela, invited all the old activists back to South Africa. My parents went back. Um, and so she was visiting my mom in South Africa. And she said to me, "Arena, leave Shah. She just came out with it. And I was kind of shocked, you know, that she had broken this and just sort of really put out what she thought. And she said, it's time you have to leave Shah. And I thought about it, um, and um, and I knew it was only coming from her, you know, from her compassion of seeing me in so much pain for this last year. And I thought to myself, I could, but I really want to hold through to find the place of love. I really want to keep on processing what it is that we have to process together until uh, until we can come to that place of love and so we didn't separate then we we just kept on talking and trying to stretch and trying to found our way until there was a moment when we were sitting at our kitchen table and we had we had just said something and we looked at each other and it was it was a look of just just both of us holding each other in our hearts and both of us saying we can't do it we both it's almost like we said it at the same time oh we can't do it and there was no hate and there was no blame and it was and that doesn't mean that those feelings haven't come up uh, since then you know she took, I came back, she packed all the stuff and moved, and I came back into the house and I was like, oh, I can't believe she took that, you know, how <laughs> come she took that? <laughs> but I knew, you know, it was that, it was, I knew that it was just, of course, what happens, and, you know, it was fine that those feelings were coming up. I wasn't, I wasn't going to invest, invest into them. Um. So, So this Dharma talk is really about um, just sharing two really, uh, two sort of big deals in my life, the transformation that's happened in South Africa that (coughs) continues to transform actually and that continues to demand incredible patience and perseverance in the face of difficulties and my relationship with Shah. and it's just to say that um, that renouncing blame and the separations that result from it, whatever the storyline, can only bring us closer to our hearts and to that place of deeply coming home to ourselves. Mm-hmm. This is uh, what Pablo Neruda says. And now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once, on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second, and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green walls, walls with gas, walls with fire, victory with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps the huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So let's take a moment to sit together.